As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Justin Briley, apologetics and theology editor for Premier, sitting down once again with Tom Wright to ask your questions here on the podcast. And it's brought to you by Premier in partnership with SBCK and N.T. Wright Online. And today's show is on your questions on Bible translation and the difference it makes sometimes, uh, depending on the way you translate certain parts of Scripture. But before we get into today's show, we've had some lovely feedback from listeners on some of our podcast platforms over on Podbean, W.J. Hughes wrote, Great to hear Tom and Mike discussing their new book together. Very meaningful. Christmas list number one for me. Lovely to participate in up-to-date listening and be aware of what N.T. Wright is doing now in his recent trip to the States, his move to Oxford, keeping up with his current thinking too. Yes, and I hear that uh, trip to San Diego and elsewhere in the States um, publicising the New Testament in its world with Mike Bird was very successful indeed. I hear there's been absolutely a huge reception for this new book, by the way. Uh, Many, many copies sold already of Tom and Mike Bird's new book, The New Testament in Its World. Uh, We uh, talked about it with both of them uh, a couple of episodes ago. Uh, Lisa wrote in, I love it when N.T. Wright answers questions that have crossed my brain from time to time. Pleasure to listen to thank you Uh, and Demelza on uh, iTunes says I can't get enough of this podcast the questions come from listeners so they're genuine and heartfelt and the answers are not only pastoral but informative and educational thank you so much for the podcast and uh, Kerry in Australia says this is my favourite podcast I'm yet to write in with a question but I really appreciate listening to all the submitted ones of which I'm sure resonate with so many people podcasts like this are immeasurably important for people of faith as they explore concepts which are generally not not well thought through by the average person and well-researched ideas are not always easily accessible a deeply treasured tool thank you so much and finally a uh, jlc says i'm a new fan of dr wright i heard recently an analogy the bible is the menu not the meal or it's the treasure map not the treasure jesus is the meal and the treasure um, thank you very much indeed and uh, that's an apposite comment uh, as we go into today's show on bible translations if you want to keep up to date with the show and all the cool stuff on offer obviously of course do get yourself subscribed over at the website askntwrite.com and uh, we'll keep you up to date and make sure you're in on all the good stuff you can do and of course you can ask a question yourself and do feel free to leave us some of your own feedback as well there or indeed wherever you get your podcast from time to get into today's program 
Great to be sitting down with Tom Wright again for today's edition of the podcast. And we've got your questions on Bible translations today. Um, now, this is something that's obviously close to your own heart recently, <laughs> Tom, having uh, worked on your own Bible for everyone. Uh, come out in this large volume now. In fact, we've got copies sitting right in front of us. Yes. Um, John Goldingay has done the Old Testament. You've done the New Testament. Um, how long did it take you to, to effectively <laughs> translate the New Testament yourself, well, Tom? Uh, of course, what happened was this, that I started this extraordinary project of doing the New Testament for Everyone, which was to write little guides mm. to Mark for Everyone, Matthew for Everyone, Paul for Everyone, First Corinthians, etc. And the publishers said to me right from the beginning, are we going to include the text of the New Testament in these little books? Mm. And we thought about that for a minute and decided we had to because the point was that these would be the sort of things somebody might read on the bus Absolutely. on their way to work. And it's quite difficult on a crowded bus to, to have, have a Bible, a Bible on one lap and a book on yes. the other. So we wanted to have text and and commentary in the same little volume. But then the question was, which version are you going to use? <laughs> and the point was this. This series, the New Testament for Everyone, was designed for people who wouldn't uh, be regular students. They wouldn't have sort of undergraduate degrees or whatever. Mm. And to have lots of footnotes saying, actually, what this word means is really such and such. Or if I was then to say in the commentary, what a pity that the translation said such and such, because really it means this. Those are the sort of things that were, no, we can't say Mm. that in this Mm. kind of bargain basement commentary. Mm. So I foolishly said to the publisher, (laughs) perhaps I should do my own translation. Uh, And then thought, (laughs) What did I just say? (laughs) So we set off doing it, and actually I really enjoyed it. Um, Because the New Testament is vivid, and it's it's dramatic and poignant. And uh, I like English prose. I wanted to try to find ways of bringing Mm. that out. And there were some stylistic tricks which I think enabled me to do that a bit. you know, so, that for instance, when in the Gospels it says Jesus said such and such, in the Greek it would be um, Jesus said such and such. But in English, if you look at a novel, mm. what you tend to have would be yes, comma said Jesus, yes. comma, and then so mm. the sentence would be broken yeah, like that. Yeah. So I deliberately turned things around right. like that to try to make it more vivid English. You know, the, the one rule is this: if you take an exciting book and make it dull. It must be a wrong translation, even if literally word for word it seems to be accurate. And, and is it a very different process, I assume, when you're doing a one-man translation as opposed to Bibles that are effectively written by committee and sure, lots sure. of different people are uh, Yeah, uh, of course. And, I mean, uh, there were editors and proofreaders and mm. people who did check it. And then, actually, when the whole thing was done, and part of the question was, how long did it take <laughs> me? And the answer was, I was doing other things, <laughs> like I was um, Bishop of Durham for yeah. seven of those years. <laughs> but so I started in the year 2000 with Mark and Luke, and I finished um, – on the cusp of 2010, I think it was New Year's Eve 2010. I did I did Revelation, so right. it was it was 10 years while yeah. doing lots, while yeah. being a bishop and lots of other things. Um, and what I would do was this: I would first take however long it was, five days, seven days, nine days, simply to do a draft of the translation of the whole book, um, whatever it was, mm. and then I would put that to one side, and then. Usually some weeks later, I would take another week or two Mm. and carve out that time from the diary. And then I would go back to the translation that I'd done, and I would be praying through it while editing the translation and checking bits to see what from that 
needed to be said in the commentary. And so the two would be interacting with each other, and then I would write the commentary. And then finally, we pulled all the translations out, and it turned into this little volume, which then turned into the the, the um, Bible for everyone. The New Testament version of that. Both available, of course. Yeah. Um, SBCK it is, publishing yes. it here in the UK. Zondervan probably in the USA. Um, it's or it's Harper in oh, okay. uh, my New Testament is Harper, okay. but it's called the Kingdom New Testament. Oh, okay. As usual, go. Americans like their own titles. <laughs> well, look, um, we've got um, one uh, American yeah. here uh, on a question. It says Christian, who's in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, well, we've already answered the first part of your question, Christian. Why did you choose to write your own translation of the New Testament? <laughs> but the second part of the question was, what can we expect to find new or different verses from other versions popular here in the US, such as the ESV or NIV? Any any kind of particular thing that sort of distinguishes or, or specific verses people might be surprised at the way you've rendered them? Goodness. Um, quite possibly, yes. I mean, I naturally gravitate towards Paul because that was my primary research. And mm-hmm. that's probably what I'm one of the things I'm best known for anyway. And part of the difficulty with Paul, and it's an exciting difficulty, (laughs) is that some of the big words that Paul uses, and I give the example in the preface here um, of of the word dikazune, which we translate as righteousness or justice Mm. or something like that, we do not have an English word that corresponds to all the things that dikazune meant in the ancient world, in Plato, in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, let alone in Paul. And I use the illustration. It's like a huge cargo ship collecting cargo from many different ports and sailing down. This word is sailing down (laughs) a river, having picked up cargo. And do we have a ship that big? No, we don't. Neither in English nor in French nor in German, which are the two other modern languages Mm. I know best. Do we have a word which will carry all? So you have to paraphrase. And so you have to talk about covenant faithfulness. Or, or God's justice or something. And that will be different because mm. Paul is moving between different, to us, shades of meaning. So I've done my best yes. to reflect that. And so there's a constant to and fro between what I discern Paul to be saying when he's alluding to Genesis 15 or Isaiah or whatever uh, and how we could say something like that in English. That's really difficult. Reese in New Zealand asks... Um, and also so does Ruth in Westwood, um, New Jersey, actually. Same question from both of them. Why in your version of the New Testament is the Holy Spirit spelt in lowercase? Uh, and uh, Ruth also adds, um, I'm bothered by it, by your breaking with tradition and not capitalizing Holy Spirit, as in Matthew 1, verses 18 mm-hmm. and 20. I know the original Greek text did not use capital letters there. Is that your only reason for not doing so? Actually, a lot of the early Greek texts were in block capitals. Um, Some of the earliest manuscripts are precisely in in what we would call block capitals. But um, this is the sort of question that could only arise within an English-speaking world (laughs) because it's only, I think, in the English-speaking world that we have had the convention of using capital letters when we want to emphasize this word. Mm. And older Um, Christian English in 16th and 17th century used to have not only God, Holy Spirit, Messiah, etc. with capitals, but also any pronoun related to them. So who, his, etc. They would all Mm. have capitals. Mm. And that continued until Mm. the middle of the last century. Mm. And then it started to sort of quieten down. For me, this is 
there's two things going on here. One, it's partly a rejection of what in the trade we call docetism, which is the idea of a Jesus who's sort of floating six inches above reality and then a Holy Spirit who's floating, as though you have to say these words in a special sort of hushed tone of voice. Um, And actually the whole point of Christianity is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory and that it's, it's the glory of God with the feet very firmly in the muddy ground mm. and that any attempt to say, oh, no, we've got to use capitals for these because that makes it sort of religious and special. Um, I have a kind of an allergic reaction to that on, on good theological grounds. But here's the second thing. In Paul's world, um, the word pneuma, which is the word we translate wind or spirit, mm. um, was a very common word in spirituality, in philosophy, in psychology, in um, uh, the, the meteorology, whatever. And uh, when Paul talks about the pneuma or the hagion pneuma, he has no means of differentiating it by using a, a trick of, of orthography like that, of just making it a different thing. In other words, the Holy Spirit, as far as Paul and John and so on are concerned, had to make its way in a world where there were many pneumata, many spirits. Mm. And uh, Paul trusts that that will happen. And that's part of the game, discerning the spirits. And to cheat, as it were, by giving this one the capital S so we all know we all feel comfortable. I, I think that, that rather sort that's of misses the point. I mean, I, I just picked up a copy of, just yeah. to check for yeah. myself, but you obviously do use capitalization for, for God and oh, yes. Lord yes. Jesus and, and those sorts of... So why, why in that well, case is it valid in, in I'm the not case sure. of the Holy I'm Spirit? I'm not sure. I mean, I do, yes. I just opened at random here. And, and Lord, and that... That may be, if I was doing it again, I might actually want to do the same with Lord, because okay. Kyrios, we're in a world of many Kyrios, right. many Lords, okay. as he says in First Corinthians 8. Um, and I'd uh, uh, be interested to know what I do with that. <laughs> yes, there are many gods and many Lords, but for us there is and one Lord, and I've then capitalized, capitalized it. it right. I, think, I think I might, might want to change that That's now. interesting. Okay. Um, uh, but, but, but I want to say, this is not, you know, if you're in German, every noun has a capital letter at the beginning right, of it. Yes. So in German, the, the Holy Spirit is Heiliger Geist. Mm. And Heiliger has a small letter because it's an adjective. And Geist has a capital right. letter because it's a noun. There's nothing whatever right. to do about theology. A, a Pferd, which is a horse, has a mm. capital P, you know, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So th- this is a perception of, um, usually, sadly, the, the, the monolingual... <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, English, and, and, English and, and, and in a sense, a perfect example of the way in which obviously we are always working from translations yeah. of yeah. Um, what was originally written down in Greek by and large, but which equally was, uh, if you like, taking what would have originally been Aramaic often words and those yeah. sorts of yeah. things yeah. When, which yeah. Jesus would have spoken. Yes, uh, and I remember Rowan Williams in a sermon ages ago on the celebration of an anniversary to do with William Tyndale. Uh, the, the great Bible translator, Rowan said, Christianity has been a translating faith from the beginning. Mm. And translation is always a risk because the language, you know, again, people who only speak one language um, or at most two often imagine wrongly that languages simply have counters. So here is a table, um, the German is Tisch, uh, the French is Tabla, mm. and we know what that is. Yeah. But then as soon as you start to get into abstractions, whether it's love or righteousness or whatever, no, these words do not correspond one-on-one at all. And so one is constantly, and I think this is part of the joke of being human and of being part of a worldwide family called the followers of Jesus. 
we're going to come to some questions on specific translations one one that i had though i, I was recently mm-hmm. involved in a, in a debate with an atheist i, I normally chair these debates mm-hmm. but on this occasion mm-hmm. I, we were in oxford it was put on by the christian union there and and the main case against christianity that the atheist had one of the main cases was that well it, it, why would a god choose to communicate this essential truth through this incredibly you know broken form um of of using you know people writing things down 2000 years ago and then it being copied and errors being made and then you know finally we end up with something that might be approximate what what and he said any god worth its salt would 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 give you a far more reliable method of communicating this truth and you know and well i tried to answer that firstly i tried to say firstly we actually have quite a good way of getting back to the original text so it's not quite as bad as you're making out but but equally um <laughs> I suppose there's that question of, of could God have done it a different way? This seems like a very sort of, you know, prone to us <laughs> being able to take our own thing from it and yeah, re- I, I, re-understand I, I, it. Absolutely. Just like when Jesus was walking around, people um, just heard a bit on the edge of a conversation and misunderstood it, or people saw him and thought he was demon-possessed or whatever. And uh, it's the most extraordinary risk. If if there was a sensible God, why on earth would he become incarnate? And why <laughs> there in the messy, muddled Middle East? Mm. Um, and wasn't that a risk that he might have been run over by a camel or died of flu <laughs> at the age of 19 or whatever? And yes, of course it was. And that's part of the point. Because I mean, I, the, the question, which many Christians actually mm. uh, approach things like this as well, if there is a God, he must want da-da-da-da. If there is a God, he would have to do A, B, and C. And I want to say, when you hear that word must, run for the hills, <laughs> this is a bad way of doing theology, but as a Christian theology anyway. Um, though many Christians have tried to do it that way, the only way we know about Christian theology, as I argue in that book there, is by starting with Jesus. Paul, um, John says no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. You see that again. How do you translate the Greek? Hutos exegesito. He's provided an exegesis of him. He's, mm. he's unfolded who God really is. And so the messy muddledness is part of the joy of it. Otherwise, it would only be severely rational mm. people mm. who would be able to be Christians. And most of the world are have mud, muddled, I, I, messy I, I, lives. I did try to make that, that point yeah, to this person that, that the particular standard of evidence that you <laughs> require to believe in God is rather different to many people down the ages. And yeah, as it happens, yeah. this book appears to have, in a rather miraculous way, spoken to generation upon well, generation of people not, not only and so, transformed the world. Exactly. But not only so, but if you look at all the great classical texts, whether it's Plato or Sophocles or Cicero or whoever, our knowledge of those texts is almost in every case based on two or three medieval manuscripts. Our knowledge of the New Testament is based on literally hundreds mm. of manuscripts which go back in some cases, bits of them, to the early second century and lots and lots, dozens, hundreds from the third, fourth, fifth, mm. sixth centuries. So the convergence on this text is truly extraordinary and as is the fact that it makes excellent sense within everything we know about first the first century jewish world um, uh, of the time of jesus the ask nt write anything podcast is brought to you by premier in partnership with sbck and nt write online and nt write online are offering a new free ebook from tom from hypocrisy to compromise to faithfulness it's the story of acts 15 
and explores how the early church transitioned from a predominantly Jewish messianic movement into something new that the world had never seen. Learn the story behind this pivotal moment in church history with this new free ebook from Tom Wright. Get it now at ntwrightonline.org slash askntwright. That's ntwrightonline.org forward slash askntwright. Let's go to um, a couple of questions that came in specifically on translations. Um, uh, TK in Australia says, we've been blessed with different English versions and translations of the Bible. Uh, What makes a good translation for someone not in seminary? And how are we supposed to discern whether newer translations such as the Passion Translation or even the Bible for Everyone are accurate without ourselves having prior knowledge of the original languages? Um, and a similar question from Judson in, um, is it Gig Harbor or Jig Harbor? I can never <laughs> remember which way to pronounce it in Washington State. says, for those who aren't sufficiently conversant with the original biblical Hebrew and Greek languages, what are your recommendations for English Bible translations other than your own and why? Um, so how, how do we judge what's a good one? I mean, do we yeah. just have to take it on trust that this Bible we've been presented with is, is a pretty good yeah, approximation um, of the originals. Of course, we, we are in a funny situation now because there are more English translations now than ever before. Mm. And there is a rough convergence, but there are some very different ones. And some of those translations um, are not actually translations, but, but, but paraphrases. And as I've said, paraphrase is necessary for translation, but there's paraphrase and paraphrase. Mm. And I've tried in mind to stick as close to the text as I can recognizing that many words don't have a a, a one-on-one correspondence but there are some and when I was growing up there was a thing called the living bible which is still out Mm, there I think in a new version now and that was uh, quite a cheerful paraphrase where they would sort of swallow a paragraph home and whole and then say something (laughs) rather similar Um, well fine I'd much rather they were doing that than 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 not Mm. and anything that joggles us out of familiarity that's the thing okay so I've often said to students and and people in church who've asked me this question if you don't have the Hebrew and Greek, and perhaps even if you do, you should have at least two very different translations on your desk. Now, for your own personal, private reading in your praying time, maybe just stick with one for the moment, and then every year or two, change it and do a different one. Then every so often, for instance, sometimes on summer holiday, I will take a translation of the Bible that I've not used before because there are so many, and I will simply spend some hours over the holiday mm. reading through whole books right. and just seeing how they sit with me and enjoying doing so. Mm. Um, but because I normally work in my professional life with the Hebrew and Greek, um, I do use the NRSV. I use the old revised version from the 1880s, which is um, a good, clunky, older <laughs> English thing, um, but which is actually quite helpful in some respects. Mm. Um, I like the New Jerusalem Bible, not because it's always getting it right, but because, again, from quite a different angle and with lots of quite insightful ways of, mm. of going at things. Um, Henry Wandsborough, was it? Who yeah, did it, it, large, largely it was Henry Wandsborough. Yeah, I, yes, I only yes, know that because my, my wife did a trip around um, Israel with oh, him really? Really? as, as really? a student from Oxford. Interesting, interesting. Um, and yes, uh, yes. He, he, was, he is quite a remarkable character himself. Mm-hmm. But all of this reminds me of the fact that perhaps it's even helpful, the fact that we have so many different translations, to remind us that ultimately it's about the person this is all leading us towards rather yes, than yes. investing the words themselves necessarily with, yes. with, with 
because we're not treating the Bible like, say, the Quran, where it's yep, seen yep, as yep. very much as though there is only one way yes. of understanding this. The text is set out by God and that's it. That's right. I mean, the Quran in, in uh, Islam is, as it were, the equivalent of Jesus in Christianity. And when people talk loosely about people of the book, actually the sort of thing that the book is in the Jewish world, in the Muslim world, in the Christian world, is very subtly different. Mm. Um, And one should never forget that. Um, But I say that as somebody who has a very high theology of Scripture. Um, That is to say, I really do believe that the Bible is the book God wanted us to have. But that means that it's the Bible warts and all, mm-hmm. loose ends of texts and all, you know, what happened to the lost ending of Mark and all. Yeah. This is the Bible that somehow God wanted us to have. And back to your previous question, it's it's to do with the fact of the incarnation, that, that this is God getting his boots muddy and his hands messy with the reality of our world. And if you got this pure, um, undistilled, uh, pure distilled thing, um, I'm not sure that everyone would be able to, to, to get hold of it. Whereas these stories, precisely with their oddities, etc., they do all sorts of things in our world, which actually from the ground up we mm. can see as being speaking the word of God to people of all sorts. Let's come to one of those issues with hmm. specific mm-hmm. um, texts and what, when they are and aren't included and that sort of thing. Um, Seth in Pretoria, South Africa, asks this question, says, um, thanks for the podcast, supremely helpful on a regular basis uh, in my life and those with whom I share my life. But my question is in regards to the story of the woman caught in adultery. That's in John's Gospel. My question to Tom relates to his role as translator and interpreter and his understanding of inspiration in regards to this text. Now, many Christians don't really care, know or understand the note within their Bibles stating that the story is exempt from the earliest and best manuscripts. So, Tom, what do you do with this passage? Why is it still in our Bibles? Why do leaders and Bible teachers avoid telling their congregations about its textual nature? And are we to consider it canonical and thus inspired? When it comes down to it, if it wasn't in the original manuscripts, how can we keep it in ours and at the same time maintain integrity? Yeah, the phrase the original manuscripts is misleading because there is no, you know, we don't have the manuscript that John himself wrote. Um, The earliest manuscripts we have, as I said before, are fragmentary from the early second century. Some think we've got odd fragments from the late first century, but that's controversial. Mm. But actually to have anything at all from the second century is quite quite remarkable, remarkable, considering, as I said before, about all other classical texts. So when we say the earliest manuscripts, that doesn't necessarily mean the best. And what um, scholars have done who've worked on the textual critical problems, as they're called, is to look at all the manuscripts, and this is a vast undertaking, um, and to compare them and to see, and in some cases you can see that, ah, yes, uh, what looks to us like a mistake was introduced in this point. We've got a 4th century manuscript. And then this family of manuscripts have all copied that mistake. It's like Stephen Neal in his introduction to the New Testament uses the example of when he was teaching in a school in India and uh, he was teaching maths and um, the, the, the boys had got an elaborate cheating system where one or two really good mathem- mathematicians mm. Mm. would give their work to others who would hand it on mm. and he would be able to construct a flow chart of right. who'd used. Yes. So, I mean, there you could tell who the originals were, but the, the art of textual criticism of the New Testament is that we can't easily just say, okay, it all goes back like that and that was yeah. the original. So, 
It's the same with the so-called lost ending of Mark. Mm -hmm. It's the same with um, that odd bit at the end of 1 Corinthians 14 about women keeping silence in Mm -hmm. churches, where that's missing from Mm -hmm. many early manuscripts, Mm -hmm. and so on. So it isn't unique to this question Mm -hmm. of John 8. The question of whether a preacher should tell the congregation this kind of thing depends entirely on who the congregation are and what stage of their Mm -hmm. development they're at. Um, There are some things which will just confuse people, and I would rather myself tell them that in the context of, let's have a Wednesday night Bible study, and let's really go at this stuff. And now Mm. here's a couple of books, and you might want to Mm. look at this. And wean people off um, a sort of idea that the Bible fell down from heaven in the King James Version, complete Mm. with maps, Mm. um, you know, (laughs) and say, no, no, it's okay. This doesn't mean that the whole thing is falling apart. It Mm. means it's a real ancient Mm. book. When it comes to John 8, um, actually, I think the passage starts in 753, which is the last yes. phrase of, of chapter 7, through to, um, through to verse 11. Um, it is an odd passage in the sense that it doesn't seem to flow directly out of chapter 7, mm. and it doesn't seem to flow directly into chapter 8, but it does look as though it belongs somewhere. And mm. the early manuscripts Some of them have it attached to Luke, for instance. Mm. Mm. Uh, And it's as though somebody knew that this was a Jesus story, which belongs somewhere. Somewhere. And whether John had it as as a Jesus story, which he wanted to put there, or whether somebody else has put it into a manuscript. Uh, You know, I I lose no sleep over this at all. But I do notice this. The way that John 8 works, and it's a long and quite difficult chapter, Mm. is that it starts with a group of people who want to stone a woman, Mm -hmm. Jesus comes alongside this woman and says, I'm not condemning you, but go go away and don't sin again. The chapter ends with them picking up stones to stone Jesus. The chapter has a sort of circular quality Mm. where Jesus comes and takes the woman's part, as Mm. it were, Mm. and ends up being threatened with stoning himself. And that, to me, is a kind of a microcosm of what's going on in John's gospel, that the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, and at the end, or in chapter 19, it's the the living word who then gets mm. crucified on our behalf. Um, and that makes me think that whoever put it here actually had quite a subtle theological mind here. And we do know that John seems to have had a subtle theological right. mind. So it's perfectly possible that it is a genuine Johannine passage. And and in that sense, it, when the, this person, Seth, asks, you know, should we regard it as inspired or mm. not? What's what's your what's well, your answer to that? Uh, is it? I, I would say yes, but what? But I would then want to say, let's sit down and talk about what we mean by inspired. Right, sure. Because the same with the lost ending of Mark. We, I, I'm happy to read the, mm. lost, the, the extra ending of Mark in church, even though I don't think that's actually what Mark wrote. But somebody in the very early church wrote it because I think they found Mark um, with a truncated ending and thought we can't just leave it at that. Um, and that's okay. Editors can also be inspired. The problem then is with the doctrine of inspiration that says inspiration is one person being zapped by the Spirit and writing almost by dictation. That's not what Paul looks like. That's not what Luke tells us. He's he's Mm. a historian. He's used oral and written sources. What's the big deal about that? Mm. Can God not work through the ordinary historian's methods? Of course God can and does. Um, Sometimes God will give people direct revelations, as in the Old Testament prophecies, but... um, so let's get our theory of inspiration sorted out, and it's got to be big enough and robust enough to cope with textual variants. I'll just get one final one squeezed in at the end. This is Brody in Lynchburg, Virginia, 
who says in uh, 2018, Pope Francis claimed that the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer and lead us not into temptation is mistranslated. He said that a better translation would be something akin to do not let us enter into temptation. How do you render the passage in your own New Testament translation? And what's the Mm. theological significance of adopting the Pope's (laughs) recommended translation? I I remember there were a lot of, you know, headlines around this when it it happened. You know, lots of people saying the Pope wants to change the Lord's Prayer. Um, uh, Okay, so we, I mean, most of us know it actually in the King James Version, don't we? You know, our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, and, and in a sense, I think it's our familiarity with that yep. which makes us think, well, yep. anything else sounds wrong somehow. But, yes. but how? Well, I don't. I can't remember exactly what the Pope's the way the Pope wanted to su- suggest it should be translated. But what's your yes? Your uh, here in Matthew six, what I've got is, "Don't bring us into the great trial." Okay, that's because the word pirasmos, temptation or trial, in that world, as Jesus says it in Gethsemane, "Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation." Um, that seems there to have referred to the fact that Jesus knew there was a great trial coming mm. upon the world at the time. We can still pray that because we are promised that we may well go through uh, a terrible time before the final end. And the prayer is that we will not have to bear the full brunt of that ourselves. In fact, for Jesus' followers, it's that they mm. wouldn't bear it at all, that Jesus would take it on their behalf. But it's... it's so, is temptation the wrong word well, then, really, today? that's the problem. Yes. That's the problem. And I think that's what the Pope was reacting against. And actually, of course, as with a lot of things that the newspapers get hold of, <laughs> this was not new. People have talked <laughs> about that phrase forever. Yes. Um, and he was simply talking good sense that if you think God can lead us into temptation in order to sort of make life difficult, yeah. he said, what sort of that, a view of God? Sure. is that yeah. and james in the letter to james letter of james mm. says god doesn't do that it's very right, explicit sure. yeah. god is not tempted by evil himself and does not tempt people mm. we are tempted when we're led astray by our, by our own desires and so on um so i think that the pope was quite right that if the faithful were thinking oh dear god might be leading me into no please don't do that yes. then that's a wrong view of god it, it, it's um, it's sort of <laughs> Slightly sad in a way that, that one of the best best known bits of the Bible for most people who perhaps learnt it in school mm-hmm. and church growing up is actually not brilliantly worded in that particular moment and can yeah. can make people confused. But, but, yes. and, but it's, it's partly a thing we've discussed on another podcast that this is actually a bit where the very specific first century Jewish thing shows mm. through yes. and where you have to wrestle with that to see mm. how we make sense of it ourselves. And and uh, that's where I would go to first. But the problem is people are, you know, I was listening to another podcast um, by someone who's a sort of occasional churchgoer, I think. And they said, oh, I just can't stand it when they put <laughs> modern versions of the Lord's Prayer into services. I, I want my good old, you know, and we, we are rather wedded very often to, to, oh, yeah. to those oh, yeah. but the, and, familiar. Uh, isn't and, it? Yeah. Uh, I, I totally get that. Um, if. I go to a church where they've changed the words of one of the hymns. You know, I've known a lot of great hymns from the days of my boyhood. And if you're singing along and suddenly find that some idiot has switched it around. And I think, oh, okay, okay. I can see why you didn't like that. But actually, that was a dumb thing to do. Um, then, but this is a typical 70-year-old talking. <laughs> well, look, um, it's been great fun to talk for the last half an hour on Bible translations. Hope it's been of some help to those whose questions we got to today. And uh, thank you very much for joining thank me again, you. Tom. Thank you. 
Thanks for being with us on the podcast today. If you've enjoyed the show, why not tell others about it and give us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, next time, we're going to be answering your questions on the Old Testament, so make sure you're subscribed as well for the regular newsletter, bonus content, and, of course, our regular prize draws. And you can ask a question yourself too. That's all available at askntright.com. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Ask NT Write Anything podcast. Let other people know about this show by rating and reviewing it in your podcast provider. For more podcasts from Premier, visit premier.org.uk slash podcasts.